0: We're returning this week with a long interlude set in an entirely new world. Trigger warnings for death and disease. You are listening to SIX. A short story written and narrated by Molly Rogers
1: I once heard a story about six kids who got detention and became friends when they realized they had more in common than they thought. That is not how we met. It happened during our daily evacuation practice. We walked about a half-mile away to the footbridge over the Thulman River. The bridge can get crowded with the whole sophomore class on it, so we stood up against the right-side railing. Then there was a whooshing sound, teachers running, a flash of light falling and screaming. The screaming must have been Melanie. Helene certainly wouldn't have screamed like that. I tried to look in the direction of the sound, but found I could barely move my head as I was strapped down. Lights zoomed by above me. To my right was Garrett, whom I only knew because of his boxing trophies. But the side of his face looked like he'd tried to box with a fire. He was also strapped to a moving table. People surrounded us, chattering through masks. I felt like I should know where I was, but I couldn't place it. Amelius! I thought I heard my mother's voice and saw a flash of her hair. I tried to reach out and call to her, but all that came out was a fit of coughing that burned my chest. A mask came toward my face. I tried to run away, but couldn't. Nor could I hold my breath to block out the gas, hard as I might try. All went black. When I woke again, I was in a place I didn't recognize. A small, plain bedroom like I might expect in a college dormitory was in a bed with a mask still over my face. I wore different clothes and a belt around my waist held a small tank that connected to the mask. The sound of voices came from the other side of an open doorway. How do you know so much about this? I started in medical this year. I thought you couldn't start occupational classes until junior year. They made an exception. That was Deborah. There was no doubting her smug tone. Clicks and hisses interrupted the conversations as if the others were also wearing masks. I sat up weakly. My legs shook under me, and I worried they might not hold my weight. Still, I walked to the doorway where I noticed the edge of a door that slid into the wall. The other room was an open living space, also resembling what I thought a college dorm might look like. My room was one of three on this wall, with three others on the opposite. A third wall had a telescreen. In the middle were two couches and a small table and chairs. Where are we? I asked. Deborah, of course, knew the answer. Quarantine. There were six of us. There was, of course, Deborah, who had been born one of the voiceless, but scored high enough on the kindergarten entrance tests to get admitted to school, and was now at the top of our class. Then there was Helene, who was also incredibly talented at getting in trouble. She'd already been expelled twice, and most people thought she'd only been readmitted because her father was on the school board. Melanie was the most popular girl in school, even though her red hair marked her as being from Tourley on the other side of Milan. Despite being head cheerleader, Melanie was not dating Garrett, the captain of the boxing team. Garrett had won more awards than any other student, but in the last two years, rumors had been spreading about the unsavory methods he'd used to win them. Finally, there was me and my cousin, Simonis. He wasn't really my cousin, but I thought of him as such, ever since he and his little brother had arrived two years earlier from Jadenth as Jadis refugees. His adopted parents, who lived next door to us, brought him to me so I could translate. I was four when I came to Melzi from Jadenth. I don't remember my birth parents. My adopted parents had never offered the information, and I never asked, I'm not sure I want to know. They brought me for regular visits to the immigrant district where a Jadiz woman taught me the language and history of my people. I think she was happy to pass it on to someone to see that the Jadinth occupation wouldn't completely snuff out our culture. Simonis' mask clicked. So how long do we have to... <sighs> Melanie picked up her remote with a scarred hand. I hadn't registered that the telescreen was on until she raised the volume. "'Striking six sophomores from Birchclaw High School during their evacuation practice.'" A reporter was saying, and there we were, a shot from the security camera on the footbridge. A flash of light went off, and we were knocked against the railing. The teachers ran toward us for a moment, then pulled back in horror, ensuring the others left a wide berth, because the bomb, if that's what it was, did not damage the bridge but it did release a fine white powder that ate through our clothing when it landed on us. The reporter continued talking. All six students have been stabilized and removed to safe custody. Officials say that if this was a bioterrorism attack, the group has failed in their goal. The screen cut to a government official just before Helene grabbed the remote and turned it off. That's enough of that. Did you notice they didn't mention quarantine? Garrett's voice was hoarse. They don't want to scare anyone. They probably wouldn't have said what they did if they could have avoided it. I could feel my legs shaking beneath me, and I took an empty seat on one of the couches before I fell to the floor. So, what happened? They still don't know. Melanie took a raspy breath through her mask. Helene looked around.
0: It's clever enough, though, isn't it? Our own little self-contained living
1: area. After the variant outbreak twenty years ago, they originally wanted to build quarantine rooms in all the houses. They tried it on Willow Street, but decided it was too inhumane, so they developed this system instead. Wait a minute. I glanced at Simona's, who shrugged. I live on Willow Street. My house doesn't have a quarantine room. Deborah leaned around Carrot to look at me. Try tugging on the molding in the far corner of your front room. It's a sliding door like these. It's just designed to blend in with the wall. It would have to be small, Simona said softly. Otherwise people would notice. It is, and the doors don't open from the inside. Like I said, inhumane. Well, what about us? Melanie stood up, but then sat down again as her legs shook. She pointed to each of the doors. Six bedrooms? Two bathrooms? How are we supposed to get out? Garrett looped his foot around a nearby chair and pulled it closer to place his feet on. The bathrooms have doors on the other side. They just don't have any handles. There's an emergency switch on each of them. Deborah gave Helene a stern look. And no, we are not going to pull them unless there is an actual emergency. Helene crossed her arms over her chest. Party, pooper. What are those for? Garrett pointed to the doors underneath the telescreen. One is the laundry chute, and the other is so they can send things in to us. As if on cue, a bell sounded and a light came on on the door to the left. The telescreen also lit up with the words, Incoming Transmission. Helene clicked it back on with the remote. A square-jawed woman appeared on the screen. Her brown hair hung neatly on both sides of her chin and her face held no emotion.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Blackwood. Our monitors indicated that all of you were awake.
1: Melanie looked around the room.
0: Wait, you're filming us? No, but the belts you're wearing are monitoring your vitals. This is necessary to track your condition. From the tests we've run, it seems that the powder
1: you came into contact with is a substance commonly known as winter smoke. But that hasn't been seen in Melzi in, what, 50 years? More? Dr. Blackwood waited until Deborah's protest had ended. The poison typically causes respiratory infection, body aches, and muscle weakness, among other symptoms. Fortunately, the condition is not contagious and is usually not terminal. Terminal? We're going to die? Almost certainly not. Haven't you been listening? Melanie stopped talking, but sat on the edge of her seat, watching Dr. Blackwood on the screen her hands shook in her lap. There are
0: treatments for the condition, though there is no known cure. Furthermore, the variety of winter smoke you were exposed to seems to be particularly strong, and the scarring that some of you received due to contact with it is unusual. That's why we're in quarantine. You're not sure. Which is why we would like your cooperation running further tests. This way, we
1: can ensure your health as well as those of your loved ones. The oxygen tanks you have contain medications which should help you breathe and manage any pain symptoms. We're now pumping medications into the living chamber so that you can take our masks off. But we will need you to provide us with information. Each of you has a table in your room with what will look like a piece of L-shaped metal on it. Each night, we need you to rest your arm in the bracket palm up, then press start on the connected telescreen. This will cue our equipment to take a blood sample from you and safely deliver it to us. As she said it, an animated example appeared on the screen to show us what the process would look like.
0: The telescreen will also have a short survey for you to complete regarding your symptoms.
1: This will help us monitor your condition to see if it is improving or declining. Helene shot her hand in the air as if she was in class. Can we use the telescreens to access media? You know, so we don't argue about what to watch on this one. The doctor gave her a look like a parent gives a child begging for candy. Then she sighed. (sighs) Yes, any other materials you need can be
0: ordered on this screen. Deliveries will be made three times a day to ensure you have enough food,
1: though there are also refrigeration units in your rooms if you need to store leftovers. Are there any other questions? She asked curtly enough that we all shook our heads, and then the screen went blank. Helene pumped her fist in the air. Heck yeah!
0: Impromptu vacation!
1: Vacation?
0: Yeah! No school, no exams, no homework, no adults to control us, except Debra. Helene jerked her head to Debra,
1: who was now opening the left-hand door and extracting a tray of rectangular containers. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to ask for them to bring my school books so I can continue to study. Exams are in nine months. See? Professional killjoy. Debra carried the tray to the table, then took several breaths as if the task had winded her. Garrett, she said, and handed him one of the boxes. Huh? What's this? He stood up and collected the box. Dinner, I'm guessing. Helene also stood up and wandered over to help Deborah pass out the food. They're personalized to us? Good thing. Garrett settled back on the couch wearily. I'm allergic to eggs. They'd have all that in our medical records. Helene picked up two boxes and brought them to me and Simonis. And they'll know you two don't eat beef. Simona stared at her wide-eyed. It's a common
0: cultural practice among the Judees, right? I remember in kindergarten, Emilius cried the first day at lunch because he didn't know what the meat patty was made of.
1: I felt my cheeks turning warm as she recalled the incident. So
0: Melanie went back to the lunch counter and demanded they give him a vegetarian
1: option. I did? Garrett nodded. I think so. Jeez, I forgot about that. How do you remember? He asked Helene before he burst into a fit of coughing.
0: I have an eidetic memory.
1: That's not- Deborah began, and then sighed, sat on one of the chairs and picked up her own dinner box. The room fell into silence as we looked nervously at one another. No one had yet removed their masks, though we knew we would have to if we were going to eat.
0: They said they'd be pumping medicine into our air, right?
1: Melanie eyed the vents at the top of the wall. Do you think they're going to poison us? Garrett taunted, and Melanie whimpered.
0: Well, that sounds like a way better way to go out than
1: starving to death. Aline pulled the mask off her face and took the lid off her dinner, as if completely oblivious that the rest of us were watching her. She was halfway through before Simonis laughed and took his own mask off. The rest of us followed. Debra did use the telescreen to request her textbooks. We all did, if only because we felt guilty. All except Helene, of course, who tried to request a bottle of wine until Debra stopped her. Everything arrived the next day, along with breakfast. By the time the light flashed on the door, we had already gathered in the common room. It took both Helene and Garrett to slide the box out of the wall compartment and onto the floor, after which they both sprawled on the floor winded. Melanie sat cross-legged next to them and extracted the meal boxes, calling our names as she handed them out. When she reached Deborah's, all of us cast a glance around to realize she wasn't there. Her door's open. Garrett's voice was still hoarse. They peeked into her room, but she wasn't there. Bathroom? Garrett asked and pointed. One of the bathroom doors was closed. Simona's knocked and called her name. When there was no answer, he put his ear to the door. I don't hear the shower running. Try the door, Helene suggested, but when he did, it wouldn't slide open. The entrance to the hospital proper is through there. She could be inside. Do you think she was telling the truth? The panic rose in Melanie's voice. About being in medical? Do you think she's a part of this? What, like she's doing experiments on us? She can't be, Simona said, though he didn't sound confident. We're not voiceless. Helene shook her head.
0: No, Deborah was just saying that to make you think she's smarter
1: than she is. She knows what it's like to actually be voiceless. She doesn't want to go back. She bit her lip and thought. But that doesn't explain why she would be in the hospital. Just then, the bathroom door opened and Deborah came out in fresh clothes. Her hair was wet, already leaving a wet stain on her shirt. She jumped when she saw Simonas. You know there's another bathroom, right? We were worried about you, I told her. You didn't answer when we called. Oh, um... Deborah looked back at the open bathroom door. Shower. She shrugged. Simona's gave me a wary glance, but none of us said anything. Melanie held out Deborah's meal box to her. Breakfast. Oh, thanks. Deborah took the box and we ate in silence until she smacked her empty box against the table and said... Did the books come in? Melanie, who still sat next to the box, started extracting items, handing textbooks to each of us. I felt like I could barely lift mine, let alone comprehend whatever was inside them. What's this? Melanie picked up what appeared to be an instrument case, a size somewhere between that of a clarinet and a trumpet. Helene reached for it. Oh, that's mine. She opened it to reveal what appeared to be a six-stringed harp made out of glass. What is that? The cedar. cedar. Simonis and Helene said together. She grinned at him, and he flushed red. I saw them once or twice in Jadenth. Helene delicately lifted the instrument out of the case.
0: A bit of a rich bitch instrument, I know, but the glass
1: produces a sound like the sun on freshly fallen snow. She strummed the beseter and hummed along to the chord, her warm treble voice filling the room, and I almost felt as if the vibrations made my bones stronger. Garrett, Simonis, and Melanie all had soft looks on their faces, as if they felt the same way. Only Deborah seemed skeptical of the instrument. "'What? I assumed you didn't want me to practice my fencing.' Before Deborah could snap back at her, Melanie pulled one last item from the box. "'What's this?' I recognized the doll right away. It was about six inches tall and made from part of an old broom handle— with arms, legs, and hair made out of yarn and a body and face that had been carefully painted. That's... that's for me. Simonis could barely choke the words out as he stepped forward to accept it from her. He caressed it as a parent might a child. What is it? Helene asked as the others stared. It's a hand cell. I said, knowing Simonis would have difficulty explaining. It's a Jiddy's custom to give gifts for the first of the year. For luck it's lucky deborah crinkled her nose as if it smelled weird simonas barely noticed he stroked the black yarn that had been glued to the top of the doll mom gave it to my brother the day we escaped for a moment no one spoke then helene returned to her instrument plucking a somber type of lullaby and sticking her tongue out at deborah in the process For the next week, we fell into a bit of a pattern. Most of us tried to study, but aside from Deborah, none of us really had the energy. So we usually ended up laying on the couches, or even sprawled on the floor while Helene practiced her besieger. Some days, I didn't have the strength to leave my room, but I always left the door open so the music could reach me. It lifted my spirits, even if it couldn't lift my body. The only one who didn't keep her door open was Deborah, who insisted... Helene's music distracted her from her studies. Deborah also continued to remain absent at breakfast, coming out of the bathroom sometime after with wet hair, though the shower would still be dry. After five nights in a row, Melanie suggested her theory again. Are you sure she's not in on it?
0: It would be the perfect cover. To experiment on kids and have one person be a decoy? She could study us from the inside.
1: Helene raised an eyebrow. You have been watching the wrong shows on
0: that telescreen, my friend.
1: Why us? I asked, if only to convince myself that Melanie had to be wrong. Three of us are foreign. Helene switched eyebrows. And Garrett and I are just collateral damage? She is the smartest kid in our class. Helene snorted. Whatever her thought process was, she didn't tell us. But that night, she did ask to switch rooms with Debra.
0: Please... My window faces east and it wakes me up too early. If I can sleep later, I might not play my music as
1: much. No, you'll just play it later when I'm trying to sleep.
0: What if I stop altogether? Please?
1: Deborah paused and looked for a moment like she might actually take Helene up on it. Then she said, No, if we switch rooms, they'll mix up the blood samples. Then she walked into her room and shut the door behind her. As usual, when the light on the door turned on the next morning to tell us breakfast arrived, Deborah wasn't there.
0: Well, we know how they know which room to communicate with. We just don't know why.
1: When Helene rattled the door handle and it didn't open, she threw her weight against it. It swung open and almost knocked her down.
0: What if they gave her some incentive? Said they would bring her family from the voiceless community.
1: Voiceless. Helene sat up and counted us.
0: Quarantine. They want to know if we're contagious.
1: The telescreen clicked on with the message of an incoming transmission. Helene grabbed the remote and turned the screen on. Dr. Blackwood's face appeared. Good morning. We would like
0: you all to gather your things. We'll be moving you to different quarantine structures today.
1: Why? I asked, glancing at Helene. You'll each be placed with a group of volunteers to see if your symptoms are contagious. If not, you'll be able to return home and we can continue to monitor
0: your symptoms from there.
1: Where's? Deborah, Melanie had drawn the tray out of the door, and it only had five breakfast boxes on it. She's already been placed in her new quarters. If there's no sign of contagion in a couple of weeks, you'll see her. And if we are contagious? Dr. Blackwood glanced down and then back at us.
0: Then you'll have to remain in quarantine.
1: They brought us one by one through the door in the bathroom. The other side had a shower station, which explained Debra's wet hair the days before. I stripped out of my clothes and was doused in water and scrubbed by two people who wore suits that covered their entire bodies, including clear plastic over their faces. I was given a fresh set of clothes, and my books were put in a glass box that was filled with something that looked like a fog. I was told this would sterilize them without causing damage. Dr. Blackwood also suited from head to toe, walked me down an empty corridor until we reached a second shower station, though this time I was merely let through. It'll be just like last time. You'll continue to send your blood samples and do the survey each night. Even your room will be in the same place. Then she shut the shower door. There was a buzz, and the click for a lock. For a second, I looked for vents, thinking a poison gas might fill the small compartment. Then the door in front of me clicked open. I walked through and into a bathroom exactly the same as the one I had just left. As Dr. Blackwood suggested, five others were in the common room. Most were adults, though there was one girl who looked younger than me. She clung to an older woman who could have been her grandmother. Unlike the original group, which spread themselves throughout the common room, these five clustered around the table, leaving the couch near the opposite wall for me alone. I couldn't blame them, though. Dr. Blackwood called them volunteers, but... Elsie didn't have volunteers. They had the voiceless. Aside from Deborah, I'd never met any voiceless, so I'd always assumed the name referred to their political status. But none of them spoke when I entered the room. Instead, they gestured noiselessly at one another, aside from a boy a few years older than me. He reminded me of someone who used to live down the street, but he kept his head down so I couldn't get a good look. A bell chimed, making me jump. The light on the delivery door came on, and the familiar boy eyed me as he opened it and slid the tray onto the floor. As I collected my box, I noticed none of the others had names. The voiceless weren't also nameless, though, were they? Deborah, after all, had a name. I returned to the couch and forced myself not to watch as they divided the other boxes between them. They may have been voiceless, but that wasn't any reason to be impolite. By then, I barely had the energy to lift my head anyway. My very bones felt heavy and pain began to pulse in my temples. I had forgotten they had been pumping medicine into our air supply. But since the voiceless weren't sick, the air here was probably normal. My hands shook as I pulled the lid off the box, and I worried I might spill the contents all over the floor. Like Melanie, I had begun to wonder if the voiceless hadn't been the people chosen for experimentation but us. After wrestling the lid off the box, I dropped it on the ground. I didn't mean to, but... I also didn't bother to pick it up. The inside of the box had a tray over the food with utensils, but it also had two prescription bottles. One held a pain medication. I tried to open it, but my hands shook too much to get a good grasp on the lid. The pain in my temples rose up through my head and panic behind it. Then a gentle pair of hands grasped the bottle and tugged it free. I looked up to see the grandmother. Wordlessly, she took off the lid and handed the bottle to me. "'Thank you.' "'I accepted it, and she pointed to the other bottle. "'Please.' "'I handed it to her. "'She smiled and uncapped it as well. "'Then she nodded her head and returned to sit with the girl. "'The medicine worked fast. "'By the time I had finished eating, the pain had left my head, "'and the shaking in my hands had settled to a slight tremor. "'The girl signaled something to me across the room, but I shook my head. "'I don't understand.' "'She signaled again.' but then her grandmother gestured sharply and ushered her into one of the bedrooms. One of the others collected the empty boxes, cautiously approaching me for mine. I picked up the lid and handed both to her after removing my medicine. She returned them on the tray and placed that back behind the door so someone in the hospital could later collect them and everything would be sanitized. With no one else sitting on the couch, I laid down. The door to my room was only a few feet away, but I couldn't quite gather the strength to go there yet. I must have fallen asleep because I woke at the sound of the door, once again notifying us that a meal had been delivered. As I opened my eyes, I saw the voiceless pulling out the tray, and a moment later the girl brought me my dinner box. How do you... I sighed. (sighs) Of course. I remembered when I saw it. Mine is the only one with a name on it. The girl, of course, said nothing, but she gestured wildly and pointed adamantly at the box. I'm sorry... I don't know what you want, I told her, but she pointed again at the box. You want my box? I asked her. The girl pointed again, and again I said, Box? Box. She sounded the word out slowly, as if tasting it. I guess you're not actually voiceless, then. The girl cocked her head and blinked at me like a parrot. I thought I heard a chuckle from one of the others, but when I looked it went dead. As if suspecting them to be laughing at her, the girl dropped the box in my lap and scampered back to her grandmother. No one else spoke. I finished my dinner and finally went to bed. I remained in quarantine with the voiceless for the next two weeks, each day passing much like the first. The girl often pointed to objects to get me to name them, repeating after me when I did so. This would continue until the grandmother signaled her to stop. The others were all surprisingly helpful for people who had been forced into scientific testing. On days that I felt too tired to get out of bed, they brought me food. would help me to the bathroom if the shakes got bad. We developed signals. A touch to the forehead meant, are you in pain? And a shaken fist, have you taken your medication? In a way, the experience reminded me of living at home with my parents and sisters only quieter. At the end of the two weeks, Dr. Blackwood came on the telescreen to alert us all that the quarantine period had ended. The doctors were confident that none of us were contagious, and we would be able to return home that day. This, of course, sent up a flurry of activity among the voiceless. Impotently, I tried to explain, first in the Melzen language, and then in that of the Jadis. This caused them to cease their gesturing, but still none of them spoke a word. The exit from the second quarantine was quite different from the first, as no sanitation procedures were required. Furthermore, the nurses were dressed as they normally were. They offered me a wheelchair, but I insisted on walking, though carrying my books, which I still hadn't studied, made the task more difficult. I heard their voices before we rounded the corner, and when I saw them, my mom practically ran at me. She stopped without hugging me, as if she knew the effort would be too great.
0: Amelius!
1: She stroked my arm, and then put her hands out for my books.
0: Do you want me to carry those for you?
1: I handed them over without a word. She put a gentle arm around me and steered me toward where my father stood with Dr. Blackwood. I was telling your parents that I'd still like you to come for a checkup every week for now. Dr. Blackwood seemed calmer in person than she had on the telescreen, though perhaps this was only because she better knew what she was dealing with. I nodded again, and my parents steered me to the car. Though the trip from the hospital wasn't a long one, I dozed on the way. Emilius? My mother shook my knee when we reached Willow Street. Are you awake? Yeah.
0: We're home. Do you want to go in?
1: Dad looked at me in the car's rearview mirror. The girls will be happy to see you. They arranged a surprise. As he said it, the door to the house burst open and two identical women ran outside. "'Angela and Dawn were seventeen, and though they were my sisters, "'even I had rarely seen either without a smile. "'They stood on the front stoop and waved as I got out of the car. "'I knew I didn't look well, because as I crossed the lawn, "'Angela's smile broke a little. "'We missed you, little brother,' Dawn said when I reached the steps. "'She put her arms around me in a hug, "'but I could feel her pulling my weight with her, helping me up the steps. "'When I got to the top, she kept her arm around my waist.' Angela put hers around my back, at my shoulder blades, allowing me to lean on her if I needed. "'We have a surprise for you. It's in the study,' Angela added. "'Higher-status families have houses with enough space for each child to have their own private study, but Mom and Dad weren't that wealthy. They could have managed it with just one kid, but Dad said that plan was ruined when the twins were born. Mom says sharing a study is what brought the three of us together. They steadied my shaky path through the house.' When we got near the study, Dawn covered my eyes with her hand. I heard Angela open the door and the two of them gently pulled me inside. Dawn removed her hand from my eyes to reveal the study, much as it was. There was a long table with the twins tinkering things and a smaller one catty-corner to it, with our old computer as well as three chairs. But next to the bookshelf on my right was a beanbag that almost spanned the length of the wall. Several pillows were piled up at the head of it, and three or four blankets were neatly folded on top.
0: Ta-da! We made you a snuggery. This way, if you feel too tired to climb the stairs,
1: you've got a quiet place to sleep. Angela's grin widened. We promise not to tinker too loudly while you're in here. You can tinker as loud as you want. It reminds me that I'm home. With the last of my strength, I wrapped my arms around Dawn, who I was already leaning on a bit. "'but I figured Angela knew it was meant for her too "'because she hugged both of us. "'If someone had told me a year earlier "'that I'd be in quarantine for three weeks, "'I never would have guessed it was my sisters I'd miss most. "'But soon after, I could barely hold myself up any longer. "'My legs shook, and I tried not to collapse. "'Angela and Dawn caught me and lowered me onto the beanbag chair. "'Then Angela left and returned with a glass of water. "'My parents came in a minute later.' i looked at my mother's worried face i'm sorry she kneeled down and kissed me on the forehead
0: my darling you have nothing to be sorry for
1: my dad carried in my textbooks and put them on the bookshelf next to me the whole family sat in the little study with me for a while but then i must have dozed off again mom brought me dinner and afterward angela insisted on helping me to the bathroom but the girls were right i had no desire to climb the stairs So she helped me back into the snuggery, and I slept there my first night. At least, I slept there until I woke to aches and pains all over my body. My limbs felt sore, as if I'd recently received a vaccination, only worse. My very bones ached. My dad had left my pills on the bookshelf within my reach, so I took the one for pain. I laid back against the pillows and closed my eyes, hoping the medicine would take effect soon. But after some time of laying there, I also developed a stomach ache. I tried desperately to roll into any position that would make it go away, but I couldn't. My stomach hurt so badly I felt like it was splitting in two. By the time I realized what was happening, I was nearly out of time. I tucked myself up, using the doorknob as a handle, and ran, drunken style, to the bathroom. I reached the toilet just in time. There is nothing about vomiting that is pleasant, except that once it's over, your stomach tends to feel better. I heard a light knock on the door and looked up to see my sister. I heard a noise and came to check on you. Should I get mom and dad? I shook my head. Can we tell them tomorrow? I just want to sleep. She agreed, and helped me back to my makeshift bed. Then she found a heated blanket for me, which helped soothe my aches and pains some. She also stayed with me and hummed a lullaby until I fell back to sleep. The lullaby is about the only thing I remember from Jadenth. Angela and Dawn only know the melody, and I don't know where they learned it because I didn't teach them, but I have many memories of them humming it to me as a child. The next morning, my parents brought me back to see Dr. Blackwood, who guessed I'd had a bad reaction to the medication. When we returned, Dawn informed me that Helene had come to visit. She looked like she might collapse, so I told her she should sit and rest. I think she walked here. Helene was seated at her kitchen table with a glass of water, head in one hand. She looked like she hadn't slept much the night before. Hey, Amelius. Hey, Helene. Why are you here? I took a seat across from her and my parents left us. Just wanted to check on everyone, now that quarantine is over. And you came to see me first?
0: Well, I tried to see Garrett first, since he lives the closest,
1: but no one answered the door. Next was you and Simonis. Oh, did you see him? I fell asleep almost as soon as I got home yesterday.
0: Actually, they were leaving when I got here. Looked like they were moving. Moving? Yeah, they had all their stuff roped to the top of their car. I saw his brother for a moment. He told me, Teme? And then his mom called to me
1: and they drove off. Do you know what it means? I did, though it wasn't particularly helpful. Apple. Maybe he ate an apple and it cured him? I wish. (sighs) Yeah. She sighed and took another sip of her water. So how are you? Your sister said you had to go back to the doctor. I threw up last night, so they changed my meds. Helene laughed softly. (laughs) Don't tell Melanie. She'll think they're experimenting on us. You don't, I take it? She shook her head.
0: "'Folks in Torley are pretty superstitious. Not that I blame them. I probably would be, too, if my ancestors had been chased to an island on the other side of the world because they had red hair,' she pointed to me. "'Though I guess you'd know all about that with your eyes.'
1: I looked at the table. I didn't like people pointing out that I had gray eyes when nearly everyone else had brown ones. They didn't mean much in Melzi, but among my people they were considered a mark from the gods.' When the Jadinth had begun their occupation, they had targeted those with the gene. I changed the subject. What do you think it is? Well, bioterrorism, certainly. But our own government? I think I'm going to need some more evidence before I go full conspiracy theorist. She grinned, making even me smile. Do you think you'll be going to school tomorrow? I hadn't even considered it. Uh...
0: Why don't we wait until tomorrow and see how
1: you're doing? My mom had walked into the room, and I didn't think I had ever appreciated her as much as in that moment. I had a suspicion Helene's parents would be insisting she go to school. After all, our exams were coming up soon. This year meant everything. Then my mother turned to Helene. Would you like to stay for dinner? With some effort, she stood up. Actually, I had better get going. But thank you. At least let me drive you home, Mom offered, and Helene agreed. After dinner that night, I managed to climb the stairs to my room, but I did not go to school the next day, or the day after that. On the third day, one of my classmates, Bobby, came by to bring me my assignments. He was walking my mother through something on our computer when Don helped me into the study. I took one of the empty chairs and tried to listen, but it was hard to focus. Bobby turned around. Hey, Amelius, how you doing? Tired. "'Well, I brought you your homework.' He nodded to a binder on the table beside me. Flicking through it reminded me I had almost a month's work of homework to catch up on. "'Maybe I'll go to school tomorrow,' I muttered, knowing I wouldn't be able to complete it all without some help from my teachers. "'That's a good day to go, since it's a short day.' I sighed. School seemed so long ago I had forgotten that one day of the week had a shorter schedule. (sighs) But they use the extra time to do additional evacuation practice, don't they? Doing that long walk once a day sounded like torment enough. Yeah, but some students get waivers to do work on computer modules instead. I bet you could. My mother glanced at me.
0: Could he do the computer module from home?
1: Oh yeah, you can do any of the assignments on paper or on the computer. Here, I'll set it up for you. Bobby worked some more on the computer, and Don came in again with a glass of water and my pain medication. How do you-
0: You've been holding your head again. Don't worry. I can help you work the computer.
1: She winked at me. Angela and Don used our old computer much more than I did. I didn't have the patience for its slow speed and found the tiny screen more difficult to read than actual books. Higher-status families had sleek, fast telescreens like those we'd had in quarantine, but an upgrade like that would be expensive for us. With Don and Angela's help, I tried to work on the computer, but looking at the screen seemed to make my headaches worse, and I couldn't focus for more than about twenty minutes without feeling fatigued. On the last day of the week, I decided to return, if only to escape the endless computer modules. It was my first time waking up as early as I had before quarantine. I could barely keep my eyes open, but I was determined. Remember to call if you need to come home early, my mother reminded me as she dropped me off. She and Dad would both be at work, but my sisters would be home. Though they were only 17, Don and Angela had completed all their basic courses and were now working on their professional ones, so they only attended a couple classes a week and spent the rest of their time tinkering in the study. I made it through half the day. We had just finished lunch and set out for the daily evacuation process. I made it all the way to the footbridge, which hadn't changed at all.
0: They cleaned everything up while we were in quarantine, though the sophomore class had
1: to change their route for two weeks. Helene had found me on the walk, and I was grateful, as she kept my spirits up. When we reached the bridge, I stood near the edge, draping myself over the side and breathing heavily. As the class began to move back towards the school, Helene tapped me on the shoulder. You ready? I wasn't, but I forced myself to walk. Out of breath, I concentrated on each step as I took it, mentally congratulating myself each time. The rest of the class got ahead of us, and I could hear someone hauling back to tell us to catch up but Helene stayed with me, a hand at my back. Deborah found us two looking almost as ragged as I felt. Then I fell. The next thing I remember was sitting in the school office with Dawn on one side of me and Helene on the other. Deborah sat next to the secretary's desk, speaking to someone on the phone. After a moment, she handed the phone to the secretary and wobbled to her feet. She said yes, she told my sister.
0: All right, then. Can you two make it to the car?
1: Deborah looked at Helene wearily and then nodded. Don lifted me up like I was a child and carried me. It was humiliating, but I didn't have the energy to fight it. She put me in the passenger seat while Deborah and Helene got in the back. Then she drove us back to our house. When she came around to open the passenger side door, I tried to push her back. No. Okay, but if you fall... Yeah. I slowly climbed out of the car and walked to the house, making sure each foot was as steady as could be before I picked the other up. Fortunately, none of the girls pushed me to walk faster. Dawn steadied each of us as we came up the steps, just as Angela opened the door. Everything all right?
0: Yeah, Helene and Deborah were feeling pretty worn out too, so they called their parents to ask if they could come here and rest. We can take them home after dinner. I figured Mom and Dad wouldn't mind.
1: Angela laughed. Are you kidding? They'll probably be upset you didn't bring the other two. She settled us into the living room and brought us each glass of water, and then brought out a plate of fruit. We'll
0: be in the study, but just call if you need anything, okay?
1: Thank you. Deborah said. Then she turned to me and Helene.
0: What did she mean, the other two?
1: There were six of us. Simonis moved. But that doesn't make sense. We're supposed to be going to see Dr. Blackwood each week.
0: Well, they drove off with their stuff attached to their car.
1: And I haven't seen their car come back since. Helene allowed herself a small chuckle.
0: Did you ever find out if Apples cured it?
1: What? Deborah looked between the two of us as I shook my head. That's what Simonis' brother said before they left. Apple. So you were there? Helene was there. Deborah raised an eyebrow. And you also speak the Jadiz language? Well, no. But I remember it because... Because you have an eidetic memory. Deborah interrupted sardonically.
0: You don't believe I could have remembered
1: it? Helene, it has nothing to do with memory. It has to do with phonology. Languages categorize sounds differently, so there could be words that sound the same to you but different to a native speaker. As she said it, an idea flashed through my mind. I'm an idiot. Helene. Did he say teme or teme? Helene looked nervously between us. Those are the same word. They're not. See, this is what I mean. I could hear Deborah saying to Helene, but I wasn't paying attention anymore. I stood up, barely noticing the aches in my legs, and stumbled out the door into Simonis' house. I had the sense to grab the spare key they'd given us when we took care of their dog the previous year. By the time I got the door open, the girls had caught up with me. Uh, why are we breaking and entering into their house? Because. My hands shook more and more as I examined the molding in the far corner. Teme means apple. Then I saw it. A weird piece that looked like it didn't fit. Teme means quarantine. I grabbed at the molding and threw all my weight behind it. I didn't need to. We heard a click, and the door slid open on its own. Helene gagged, and we all took a step back. What is that smell? Her answer lay before us on the floor of the quarantine room, green and bloated with red foam upon its lips. There lay the dead body of Sumonis.
0: You have been listening to Six, a short story written and narrated by Molly Surgis. To learn more about this world, find The Stitch
1: Witch's Apprentice on Tumblr, or follow the links in show notes.